Hello, and welcome to Moral of Story podcast. I am your host, Caitlin Vagadis, and while I'm recording today, I do have my dog in the basement, so hopefully he stays quiet. He's been pretty good so far. Uh, the name of this episode is called Basket Case because I had such severe symptoms, like I could not read or see things in front of me that had small details because my headaches were getting so bad from the stress, and... Uh, I was getting tunnel vision, and I was trying to explain to, like, other people what I was, like, going through. And it kept being blown off as, like, oh, this is just stress, and it will pass. And it was something that was, like, really chronic. And I felt like it was always talked about in such a small way, but it was affecting me so largely. And so part of that feeling that I was, like, losing my mind was just because I was trying to communicate it and... No matter how I explained it, it didn't seem to get the words across. But uh, I will be talking a lot about uh, anxiety in this episode and some of the stressors that all came to me in the first semester of my sophomore year. And I think with the final episode with the narrative before we do the season finale, I will be talking about treatment options and counseling, medication, and just like self-care things that you can do. But this will be talking a little more about anxiety, gaslighting, and uh, some toxic positivity where people who try to help you are doing their best but may not have been as helpful as you may have wanted. So I guess we'll just dive into it. Only one week into college, my sophomore year, I was already spending all my time on readings and homework and began to grow concerned about my ability to handle the rest of the semester if I was already barely making it through syllabus week. Furthermore, I had recently gotten my wisdom teeth out, and halfway through the week, the bottom left side of my jaw had gotten an infection. And since I was far from home and I was having issues with contacting the oral surgeon's office and getting my prescription, I became a little more stressed on top of my schoolwork. Due to the stress I was beginning to go under, I had to make a call to the counseling center because I knew the semester would be rough and I did not want to risk not being able to get an appointment like I was last year when the counseling center filled up entirely. Right before I had to make the call, however, my mom was on the phone with me to discuss what needed to be done to get my prescription filled for the infection and had warned me that she had something she needed to tell me when I got home. Later that evening, I had made the hour-long drive already exhausted from the first week of school and looking to decompress. However, I recently quit drinking when I got my wisdom teeth out because I was tired of the anxiety attacks that would start after a night of drinking in which I would question whether I was welcome among my friends or if I perhaps said something wrong. I had no evidence to suggest that any of those fears were the cause. With the anxiety and the fear that the alcohol had clouded my memory and judgment, it became increasingly hard to ignore. Therefore, when I got home, I knew I couldn't decompress with a drink, so I walked around the farmhouse looking for my dog, Kelso. He had often went hunting and wouldn't be home for days, but would always come home when I was around. I had known he was gone since I went to college, so I was hoping that he would return soon. But after a few minutes, I went back inside and began getting ready for the football game I was attending with one of my friends. Around supper time, my mom returned from work gave me my medication she had picked up and informed me that Kelso was hit by a car earlier that week and they buried him four days ago. 
I immediately started crying and considering how many false alarms we had in which we assumed that Kelso had died, and I honestly didn't expect it to hit me as hard as it did. However, the summer before going back to college, I spent a large amount of times with that dog. I had built my own desk and furniture for college, and the second the dog would hear us all turn off, he, he had taken as his cue to walk up to me. And when the pandemic was in full swing and we were in lockdown, I would sit on the porch and Kelsey would come join, and we would play with his rope toy. And if I was outside, he would always be within five feet of me, and I had come to grow used to always having him by my side. But now he was gone, and I cried for hours leading up to the game, and even considered not going because I was in no mood to be around anyone. I had cried for seven days consecutive before the pain had began to ebb, but the time I was taking to grieve and the time I needed to rest was putting me further behind in school. By the third week of college, I was barely completing all my assignments on time, as one assignment would take me as much as three hours to complete, and even with spending all my time on homework, I was still running short on the time constraints, and the work was not as well done as it usually was. I watched as my grades dropped while my effort to complete the, an assignment and the stress increased. By week three, I had already began ex experiencing burnout. As a result of all the stress, I had begun to feel inadequate. I would look around at my fellow classmates and begin to feel that I did not belong in the program. I recalled how previous semesters I had thrived and the quick turnaround had left me with low self-esteem. Furthermore, there was no payoff for the work I was putting in. I was not proud of what I was completing, so upon finishing the project, I could not even look at it without feeling a sort of contempt, because it was so far off from what I had hoped it could be. I had started to take the time out of the day to go to Eucharistic Adoration, but as the semester unfolded, one session could no longer get me through the week. I also started to notice things changing with me. I was not sleeping because I did not have the time. I was not eating. I would get hyper-focused on my schoolwork and forget to make meals or I was losing the energy needed to cook and take care of myself. When I was driving, I would catch myself dozing off, not paying attention and lost in my thoughts, which for anyone else may have been a normal thing. However, since the accident, it was abnormal if I was not hypervigilant while I was on, on the road. I had, dis I had discussed with my friends that I recognized that lack of interest in keeping myself healthy and out of harms as the feeling I was getting in my sophomore year of high school, months leading up to wanting to take my own life. In the first few weeks, I had expressed with three friends from college that I was growing concerned that I might lead back into suicidal thoughts. I was telling them this because I was encouraged to have a support system that was nearby at college that could sign on as my emergency contact, which they often dis dismissed the idea of being the emergency contact as just a routine thing, but I was stressing the importance of needing their support because as the semester continued, I had feared that the need for an emergency contact was increasing every day, as I was unsure of whether I would be able to keep myself out of harm. I was afraid of what I might do. I was required to fill out the emergency plan for my mental health, in which I was asked to list who I can go to for support, what can I do in times of high stress, and list emergency contacts in the best hospital and health centers I could go to if I had begun to have suicidal thoughts. They had listed in the packet that in case of emergency, do not call the health center, but rather 911. And I had begun to wonder at what point, when you're on the edge, do you call 911 for a mental breakdown? I spoke to friends regularly, thankful that I had the support system this time, unlike four years ago, when I had learned to stay quiet about my suffering. Unfortunately, despite the fact that I had people around me that loved me, 
I found that very few people had understood what I was going through, and as I explained the panic, the last lack of energy, the stress, and the anxiety, so many people passed it off with jolly optimism and claimed that yes, the program was stressful, but it was just more. It was much more than stress. I was feeling incompetent and that like I was a bother, and cast aside. I had no faith or pride within myself and hated waking up every day. I was in the process of looking at other options for building a similar career to architecture and was deeply considering on dropping out of school. One of my friends discouraged dropping out by telling me that I should begin, begin to look at the payoff, that yes, school is tough, but I would enjoy the career. But rather than bringing me comfort, I started to fear whether the career is would be what I wanted if I was so miserable at the moment. By week four, I had received an email by one of my professors that said he was extremely disappointed with the quality of a paper that I had turned in. It was a paper in which I whipped up in an hour because I had no other time to do it. My digital design class and studio was taken away from all my other courses, and the digital design had required nearly three or four assignments within a week, and I still had four other classes that I was working on. However, from that point forward, I began to feel a sense of paranoia every time I turned in an assignment, afraid that a professor may become upset again. I had received that email in the morning after having my friends over, and while I sat in the living room extremely quiet as I began suppressing the feelings of a panic attack, and asked my two friends if they could leave so that I could get ready and meet back up with them at home. I felt so rude, rude for shooing them out. I was already feeling guilty for the way that I was behaving the night before. I was irritable and agitated the night prior because I was so stressed and exhausted. That's when I felt that not only was I disappointing my professor, but I had feared that I was upsetting my own friends because of my agitation and the fact that I was barely making it through the semester. When I went out that night, I felt a deep sense of derealization. I felt like I was in the audience of my own life. We were sitting in a shop party and everyone was having a good time. My friends had noticed that I seemed out of it and were encouraging me to partake in the games and offering me some of the drinks they packed since I was out. But I kept feeling worse because I felt that if they knew I was about to drop out of college, that I was a failure, that they wouldn't want to be around me. Furthermore, I felt especially guilty for not feeling better despite the support that they were giving me. Their responses to the text when I was expressing what I was going through were getting smaller, and I realized they were tired of me not getting better. However, by week five, it had gotten so much worse. I was working endless hours on creating a digital model for my stereotonomy versus tectonic experimentation, and I began to create the laser-cut sheets. I was farther behind than most of my classmates because of the intricacy of the design. Over the weekend, before it was due, I had come to realize that the pieces did not fit and could not be reprinted before it was due. I emailed my professor asking him for his advice or more time to either redesign the project or recut the sheets, but he told me to continue and keep going. At 2 a.m. on the Sunday before the due date, I hit a breaking point, the point in which I realized that I could not complete the project on time. I sat in the living room praying, realizing that it was over and that I was so far behind I might as well have not even started, and I emailed my professor. This time I was completely honest. I confessed that I tried everything I could but could not get it to work, and also my anxiety and depression had become so out of hand that I would spend the following week reconstructing a new project but would not be in class the following day because it would be too overwhelming. I had taken nearly 30 minutes to write out an out the email, 
as I was so overwhelmed and would need to take breaks in which I would curl up in the fetal position on the floor, a dehumanizing position. Furthermore, the stress headaches I had dealt with for the past few weeks hindered my ability to read and write as the words moved around, which only made the coursework and writing the email even harder to complete. I remember lying there with my head pounding and the tunnel vision kicking in, and I tried to calm myself down just enough to regain to my feet and walk to the bedroom to go to bed and thinking, is this when you're supposed to call 911? My chest hurt, I could barely see, I couldn't walk, and I couldn't breathe. But I did not call 911 because I didn't want to die. I wanted everything to be over, but I promised myself and prayed, decided and committed to the fact that I did not want to die. Instead, I considered running away or taking a small trip for a few days. I thought that I've had for a few weeks now. I had no intentions of telling anyone I was going or where I was going to. I wanted the world as I knew it to go away. I wanted a road trip with no end game, no final destination, and no desire to return once I left. And that's why I never left. I was afraid because I knew I would feel no better upon leaving. And if I had left and could not get the shame and hurt to go away, I could only think of one other way to get it to go away. And as I said before, I didn't want to die. So instead, I went home that week and commuted to college. And I was so thankful for my professor for understanding. I had taken that time that week to reconstruct my project and take a few days off. It gave me enough strength to get back on my feet a little. The next time I went to counseling and I discussed with the therapist that I was unhappy and considering dropping out of college, something I had even told my professor. I was expecting a pep talk, but she said that perhaps it wasn't a bad idea to take a break. And I suppose finally having someone who wasn't blowing off the pain that I was experiencing as stress and acknowledging that it was enough for me to need a break from college made me realize that I wanted to complete my studies even if that meant I was in pain for now. But I had needed the motivation to get me through the hardest of times. My friend had suggested looking at the career, but since I was so afraid that perhaps I was making a mistake with my career, I had to get creative. I was experiencing derealization, a separation from my own reality, and felt miles away from everyone, but I use a separation from reality to create a new one. I thought about what I wanted in my future and what I had had to work towards and began to find that I would never include my work in the future. Work is just a part of life, not all of life. Rather, I began to think about having kids someday and being there to raise them, to get the help and support for mental illnesses that I never received. I thought about the rush of peace I felt at my sister's confirmation and looking forward to experiencing that same feeling one day in holy matrimony and baptism of my kids. I thought of all the ways that I wanted to be, I was wanting to better myself and support my children, including financially with my career, to help them have a better life than I had myself. This turned into the same motivation I used to keep myself alive and work on my mental health so that I could be there for them. I use this visualization method often, even working out names of my kids as I try to take my mind off the workload. I had wanted seven kids, mostly because I came from a family of six and liked having a big family, preferably four boys and three girls. The boys would be Roman and Moses, Mo for short, and the girls Lorena, after my grandma, Marie and Hunter. The rest could be decided later. When things got tough, I tried to think about sitting my sitting with my kids late at night, tucking them into bed, and telling them all the things I know now, 
helping them see themselves in a way that I never could see myself. Help them see that they are good and capable and full of a p- potential and redemption after every failure. I imagine comforting, comforting them in hard times, in the tears of joys that would come with the good times, at the baptism, first communion, graduations, sports games, and weddings that are to come. During that commute to college that week, I had friends checking in, but I never felt they knew the full extent of the pain I was in. I would never talk about it until I was drunk, and anything I would discuss about being unable to do my schoolwork because of the headaches affecting my ability to read or look at a screen, and I thought of it as mere stress, a passing, fleeting feeling, but instead it was constant, chronic, and intensifying with every day. However, thanks to my professor, I got back on track with my studio work, and caught up and things began to get better as I was put on medication. However, I had to be careful with the first few meds because I couldn't drink with them. My mom later found out about the medication and was hurt that I never told her that I was going to counseling. But immediately after finding out that I was on meds for anxiety, she would suggest that it could be anything else like high blood pressure or a bad diet that caused the headaches and chest pains because she was ashamed of my mental illness in the sense that she took it as a result of bad parenting when really that wasn't the case at all. Meanwhile, I was discussing my concerns with my friends from college because they were standing me up even on my birthday. I was being blown off if I brought up any sort of concern or complaint against the things that they had done. That's when Preston started calling me crazy and refusing to accept any responsibility for canceling plans with me for the 10th time. I stopped talking to Preston altogether after that. Because for once in my life, I was sick of blaming myself for when others blew me off or clearly upset me, or being called crazy when I talked about my mental illness. However, I stopped talking about what I was struggling with, with even some of my other friends, because they offered blind optimism without listening to what I was saying, or taking into consideration that I was trying the best I could. I was being told that by focusing on my mental illness and the symptoms, trying to understand it, that only made it worse. But quite honestly, although it was insanely tough to try to combat it rather than let it consume me and trying to take control can be emotionally exhausting, which they were beginning to see, it was much better in a greater improvement than letting it continuously consume me and better prepares me for the next time of hardships. I felt like I was annoying and a bother for not healing quickly enough, so I stayed quiet. But thankfully, as I grew quiet, the semester had also become easier easier and I was able to handle it. Towards the end, I was beginning to get into the clear. They decided to do something for me to help me gain support when I feel like I can't talk to other people. I invested in a mini Australian Shepherd and drove up to Michigan before Thanksgiving to get him and registered him as an emotional support animal. His name is Milo and he helped me recover so much in those last few weeks of the semester. I was going to include in the narrative that Milo is practically my son. In a way, he actually is kind of my child. When I first got him in November, I even made a Christmas card. And I'll probably put it on the Instagram account for when I re- announce this episode. But he was just like this little tiny fluff ball. And so he would always sit in on all my Zoom calls. Not really by choice, but he would scream if I didn't like have him on my lap. So he would always be right next to me when he's a pup. And now he's a little, I don't know, he has a little more of an attitude. He doesn't really need mom anymore. So 
He doesn't sit right next to me, but he always has to be within like five feet of me. When I take a nap, he used to sleep on the bed with me, but I rolled around too much and kicked him off. So now he refuses to be on the bed with me. So he'll sleep under the bed if I'm taking a nap or right beside it. But he always has to be in the same room. But if he doesn't want to take a nap, then he brings a squeaky toy and he brings it right up to my ear. Or he'll just whine and scream until I get up. So he's a little, he's a little ornery, but he's nine months right now. So he still has a little puppy phase in him. But enough about my dog. I'll get into some of the reflection of this episode. So to start a little bit of the reflection, I would like to talk about some of the different types of rest since I think a lot of the issues that I was dealing with in the fall semester was that I was not giving myself adequate rest. What I'm pulling the source from is My Self Love Supply, which is an Instagram account, and it's the seven types of rest. The first one would be physical rest, which is like adequate sleep, naps when needed, doing yoga, breath work, stretching, or like massage therapy, where you're kind of giving your body that time to recuperate. And then there's mental rest. Mental rest is scheduling breaks from like your schoolwork, spending time in nature or outdoors, turning off devices for a while. Uh, Social media can be really draining for your mental health, especially like even emotional health. And then repeating encouraging mantras, uh, listening to calming music or engaging in a grounding activity. Uh, Another one would be social rest which is spending more time with people who encourage you and inspire you and taking a break from socializing and spending less time with people who may deplete you. Spending time alone if it feels safe. Another thing, I don't know if this is listed in another one of the rest, but it is okay to not always try to like expand your your mind and like trying to be like open-minded about everything. If you're around people that have different beliefs than you, that can be really draining. It can kind of take a little bit of you to kind of accept it and like have your own beliefs while being around other people. So it's okay if you want to take a break from being around people who are different from you because you don't have to be around them all the time. Like it's really healthy to broaden your horizons, but you don't have to like constantly make yourself a self-improvement project and you can take rest from that. Uh, the next time of type of rest is creative rest which is reading something that's inspiring, watching something that's inspiring or uplifting, letting go of the pressure to create something and just allowing it to happen on its own time and surrounding yourself with inspiration. So it's not really the actively creative, like the act of like creating, but like taking the time to like get new ideas and kind of let the world like inspire you and have it come to you rather than forcing it all the time. Uh, The next one would be sensory rest, which is limiting time on electronic devices. The blue light can kind of mess with your sleep schedule. And as I said, like social media can be a little draining as well. Turning down bright lights or loud noises. Uh, Shutting your eyes for a few minutes to recharge, even if you're not necessarily taking a nap. Aromatherapy. Incorporating moments of silence within your day and taking time off of social media. This is like if you have issues with sensory overload, Giving yourself time can be really beneficial for you. The next one would be spiritual rest, which is reading spiritual uh, like testimonies, meditating, pray, well, text, uh, reading spiritual text, meditating, praying, uh, listening to spiritual talks, associating with like-minded people. As I said before, it is okay if you want to spend time with just like-minded people for like a little bit to like kind of reaffirm some of the things that you believe. 
and kind of find that identity in yourself and spending time in spiritual environments, volunteering time to serve others. So it doesn't necessarily have to be like religious, but like spiritual is kind of like who you are as a person and what you believe. Even if that's like political beliefs or just your outlook on life, it doesn't have to be religious. I think when people say spiritual rest, people always associate spiritual with religious and that's not like religion is part of your spirituality. It's not all of it. And then the last one is emotional rest, which is journaling, processing the emotions that you have, having a heart to heart with someone that you trust, seeking therapy, freely expressing yourself, surrounding yourself with people that you can be yourself around and setting boundaries. So it's not trying to conceal what you are feeling or trying to force it to be another thing, just allowing it to happen and just being in a trustful environment. So those are the seven types of rest. And I'll, I'm going to kind of skip around on like themes of what was talked about in this episode. So the next one that I have listed is depersonalization. And I got this from the Instagram account, Anxiety Josh. So what it has listed here is depersonalization is feeling like your body is wrong or feeling like memories are not real or your own. Uh, feeling outside of your body, you're looking down from on yourself from above, which is not necessarily the same thing as an out-of-body experience. I know like feeling detached from the world around you or like if you're in a social setting where you feel like you know you're there, but you just don't feel fully present, that would be a symptom of depersonalization. Not quite able to recognize your reflection as you. Um, I had a lot of that the summer of my junior year. And there's something that I didn't mention because like it's something personal with me that I didn't want to share that happened with someone and it was not Seth. But um, I felt so numb afterwards that when I saw the reflection, like it didn't feel like me. And if I did process it as me, like I just felt like this huge disappointment. And it's like you're viewing yourself as a separate person and you're disappointed in that person or you just can't relate to them anymore even though it is you feeling like you're not in control of your speech or movements uh feeling completely numb is a symptom of depersonalization and feeling like your body isn't responding or your senses are feeling a little off the next one i was going to mention is similar to depersonalization it's derealization and it's similar in some senses but like depersonalization is you feel cut off from yourself and derealization is more like you feel cut off from your reality. Uh, so it's feeling detached from your surroundings. Uh, sounds seem distorted, muffled, or much louder than they actually are. Objects or people look wrong, as in like they're blurry, unfamiliar, flat, too big, too small. And feeling like you're trapped in an invisible bubble, that I feel almost all the time. Like if my anxiety's built up, like I feel separated from the world around me. Uh, so like feeling like the world is unreal, like a dream, foggy or artificial is a sign of derealization. And time can be a little warped. It can speed up, slow down or seem to stand still, which is something that bothered me when I was about to get in the car my sophomore year after that track meet where time was just, it was in a standstill or it was going too fast or I just felt like I was just stuck in that moment. Um, it can also feel like you have a glass wall or veil that is separating you from the rest of the world. 
the Instagram account Hellmental comments that it is additionally uh, is feeling as if the oh I already oops, said it but I'll just reiterate uh, feeling as if the world isn't real feeling unfamiliar unfamiliar with your surroundings or having a loss of connections like I had a lot of that derealization and depersonalization that one night that my project I knew I wasn't going to be able to get it done and I had to email my professor I just for weeks before that and after that but like in that moment it was really severe. I felt like I wasn't in my own body and I had like try to get that all together just so I could walk 10 feet to my room just to like take a break and go to bed and just start the day over. And so I felt like trying to describe derealization and depersonalization to other people is like especially difficult because if you don't experience it yourself, it's hard to understand that someone can feel so detached from themselves. I feel like that's a really strange concept if you've never experienced it. So when I was talking to other people, they wouldn't necessarily be as helpful as I was hoping because they didn't understand what was going on. So that's why I wanted to explain a little bit of what depersonalization and derealization is. And moving on, I will be talking about toxic positivity. Because when I was talking to other people, they were trying to be encouraging. But it was mostly like the people that I know do not suffer from mental illnesses that we're trying to be really positive, but there is such thing as toxic positivity where you are almost canceling out how they feel and trying to replace it with like this positivity and not acknowledging the problem. An example would be saying being negative won't help you versus telling them it is important to let this out if there's anything I can do to make it easier for you, like let me know. Acknowledging that it is important for them to express what they're feeling and they're valid in what they're feeling and not guilt tripping them for being negative or like telling them like, oh, good vibes only versus telling them they'll, you love them no matter what their emotional states are and not trying to force them into an emotional state they're not ready for. Um, telling them to like just get over it rather than pointing, at that, pointing out that they're resilient and they have strength to get through it and not just get over it and just let it go and just ignore it, but like process it fully and the strength and the resilience that it takes and like reminding them that they have it in them to do it. One thing that someone's told me like a dozen times and they kept saying it and I was like, it's not helping, but like they kept thinking it was, they would always be like, well, what helps me is I always try to think that other people have it a lot worse, but that's doesn't acknowledge the fact that yes, people have it worse, but that doesn't mean that I have it good well, I don't know, but it doesn't mean that I'm not at my best at that moment. Other people are not relevant to what I'm experiencing. So trying to compare other people in their state does not make it better. Like there's something that someone once told me, they're like, well, I don't know if I'm a good person, but there's a lot of people that are worse. But if you're a bad person, yeah, there's worse people out there, but that doesn't make you a better person because there's worse people out there. So saying that other people have it worse doesn't make your situation better. And there's also people that have it better than you. So that can go in the reverse. So it's not a helpful thing to say, even though some people think it is. And it's just better to be like, well, you're not alone. And there is support to help you. Rather than being canceling it out and comparing to other people, maybe bringing people in and be like, well, there's other people that go through the same thing and they can help you as well because they can experience and relate rather than trying to separate the two. Telling them that, oh, it's just smile, crying won't help, is not 
like I said, it cancels out what they're actually feeling. Just telling them, like, it's okay to cry. We all do. Or, like, ask them if you, like, stay with them or if they need, like, comfort or something along those lines to, like, comfort them while they're crying rather than just brushing it off. I was at country concert this weekend and this one girl was crying because her boyfriend like cheated on her and her one friend came out and was like cussing her out she's like you don't need him like you just like just stop crying and have a good time she's like chewing her out I was like that's not gonna help because like she's perfectly valid to be upset and to be crying and everyone does cry at some point so even though yes like it was a fun it was supposed to be like this fun time like obviously something happened where she's not having fun she doesn't have to force herself to be in a situation where she has to have fun also, uh, before I forget, crying has, like, these chemicals in it that kind of releases some of that stress. So, like, crying actually does help because it releases some of those negative chemicals in your body. So, trying to get someone to quit crying or, like, hold it in is not helpful. Um, telling someone to just stay positive is not as helpful as telling them, like, things are tough right now. Like, do you want to talk about it or is there something that I can do? Or we could do something to distract you that's lighthearted. Like, just ask them if they want to go on a walk or just do, like, a small activity where, yeah, like, if they can't, like, they need to process what they're going through. But if they're too overwhelmed where they're not ready to process it, you can just do something small to give them the time to see if it, like, simmers a little more and rather than being extremely overwhelming. So like helping someone do small activities, going out to eat, helping them with homework, just doing something lighthearted that could help them is better than just telling them to stay positive. Um, another thing that I was experiencing uh, with one of my college friends, uh, they would try to not just like blow off some of the things that I was going through because the one that I was one person was blown off what I was going through because they're trying to help and they're trying to do like all that toxic positivity. And I acknowledge the fact that he was trying, so I'm not like upset by it. But I did have someone that would say that I was irrational. I was insane. I was a crazy bitch or something just because I was overwhelmed over my schoolwork. And like they were blowing me off. I was like, well, I'm overwhelmed over my schoolwork and I just want to like go out and I want to be with you guys to, as a distraction. And I feel like you guys have blown me off and they were. But instead of acknowledging like that I was upset about what they were doing, they were trying to tell me that I was, it was all in my head and not acknowledging the things that were upsetting me. So that is referred to as gaslighting. And what gaslighting looks like is their actions do not match their words. So they would promise to go out with me and then forget and then go out with all their other friends instead. That was like a action with it and that did not help me with since I was already in a bad state already they'll distract you from their behaviors by projecting it onto you so if I confronted them I was like well you said this they're like well you and they'd try to like blame it on me when I asked them earlier and they made it sound like I forgot because I should have been reminding them constantly but then if I remind them constantly they're like well it's just a bit much so they're always going to find an excuse to put it onto you you need to find a better relationship or stability friendship with a healthy connection um another thing that they might do is make degrading comments followed by positive reinforcements or positive enforcements that have like these backhand remarks so they can't just be genuine and nice they always have to like throw in a little shy at you at some point um they might attempt to block or are unsupportive of your growth 
um, they might lie or deny things that even if they have proof. So if I pointed out that they were blowing me off, they would lie or deny it, even though I had several instances of it. Um, telling you that you're wrong or crazy or, or imagining things. This was like my last draw with dealing with those people. And, and so I was talking to them about my mental health this whole time. And he just pointed out every single one of my symptoms of my anxiety and goes, well, I just feel like you're crazy. And I was like, well, that word kind of hurts when I'm talking about my mental health. And that was my last straw. I refused to talk to them after that. And I don't think I've talked to them since. Some of the signs that you're being gaslit, because it can be kind of tough because you want to be like reasonable and like relate to them. So sometimes it's really easy to continue being friends with these people that are gaslighting you because you feel guilty or you want to give people a second chance and stuff. A sign that you're being gaslit is you no longer feel like you're the person you used to be. You're more anxious or less confident than you used to be. You often wonder if you're being too sensitive or feeling like everything you do is wrong. Anything that, always thinking that it's your fault when things go wrong, rather than them taking any responsibility, you always find yourself apologizing to them rather than them taking any responsibility. Um, having a sense that something is wrong, but being un unable to identify what it is. So if you're in a relationship and there's something that's bothering you and you can't put your finger on it, and you just feel like all this guilt and this weight, there's a chance that they might be gaslighting you. You often question whether your response to your partner is appropriate, wondering if you were too unreasonable or not loving enough, or making excuses for your partner's behavior. I did that a few times with multiple people. It wasn't just the friends that I'm thinking of at college. It's like throughout my whole life, like I always felt as if I'm being too unreasonable or I'm not, or I'd make excuses for what they're doing and that even if they have a reason for what they're doing, like hurt people hurt people and that doesn't make it right. It makes it understandable, but it doesn't make it right and you don't have to stand there for that behavior. Um, you might feel isolated from friends or family so they will cut you off from good positive connections in your life or finding it increasingly hard to make decisions on your own because you always feel like you need that validation from that other person or feeling hopeless or taking little to no pleasure in activities you used to enjoy. So those are the signs of gaslighting, and it, it's kind of like codependents are always with narcissists. People who have really high anxiety often find themselves with some that gaslights, which gaslighting is also a trait of narcissists. It can be like a really unhealthy situation that you feed off of each other and just making it the situation even worse as time goes on. Um, now I'll just describe the causes and types of anxiety. I think that's all I will have for today's episode. But the next episode, I'll be talking about treatment options and I'll go back and review the counseling, therapy, and medication, as well as my emotional support animal. So the causes of anxiety, there can be several reasons or a combination of reasons. Um, it can be a result of genetic predisposition. So I have a genetic predisposition where I was kind of like prone to it because both sides of my family, like my mom and dad's side, have a history of anxiety. Uh, your personality can play into anxiety and it also goes the other way where anxiety can kind of play into your personality. Uh, these traits of your personality that can feed into anxiety can be being a perfectionist, easily flustered, timid, or having a lack of self-esteem or being too controlling where you have to make everything perfect and if it's not, you feel 
like you're losing this grip and that all these slippery slope events are going to happen if you don't do this right. So that can be a result of anxiety or cause it as well. Ongoing stressful events, like stress is different from anxiety, but if you are under extreme stress, it can lead into anxiety. So work stress, changing in living arrangements, pregnancy, family or relationship problems, emotional shock after a stressful or traumatic event, verbal, sexual, physical, and emotional abuse, and the death of a loved one can be in a stressful event that can lead into anxiety. And if anxiety goes on long enough, it can lead into depression. Physical health can cause anxiety and anxiety can also cause uh, physical health. So like all of this is kind of the chicken and the egg situation. But physical health conditions that are chronic, such as diabetes, asthma, or heart disease can cause anxiety. Other physical conditions can cause anxiety symptoms. It also has like a lot of muscle tightness or like injury can cause anxiety as well. Next would be substance abuse where some people will abuse substances to control their anxiety or manage their conditions, but it can also aggravate anxiety symptoms that were once off and now they're activated. So every single time I drink, like the next day, like I don't have social anxiety when I'm drinking, but the next day when I'm thinking about all the people I talk to, I have all those fears come rushing back in. And so I just came back from country concert, which is like this three day event and people are drinking the whole time and so I had like three days worth of anxiety like that Sunday afterwards because I'm always afraid like oh well I don't really remember what I said but I didn't I wasn't worried about the anxiety then but now I'm worried like did I say the right thing did I say something weird are people judging me it's like the social interaction is too much but like it control my symptoms of social anxiety were managed not really manage, but they go away when I'm drinking, but they come rushing back in even worse than if I was just in that situation sober. So substance abuse or just substance use can be really damaging for someone with anxiety. Um, The types of anxiety would be general anxiety disorder. That's what I have. And it's six or more months of general stress. And anxiety is not a permanent thing. You can have it well, it can be chronic and last your whole life that you need managed throughout your life, but it could also kind of come and go or just come once. But if it's over six months, that's general anxiety disorder. Social anxiety is kind of a part of general anxiety or it can be its own thing. It's the fear of criticism, embarrassment, humiliation in everyday situations. As someone with ang- social anxiety, I'm always questioning my place I'm always afraid I'm going to do something wrong. Uh, Panic disorder is also common in general anxiety, and it can also be on its own. And it's all the physical symptoms like short breath, chest pain, dizziness, and sweating. And you'd have pretty regular panic attacks for a month or more. Pacific phobias can also count as a type of anxiety. And then also there is OCD, which is unwanted intrusive thoughts that even if you recognize them as silly, you cannot relieve the anxiety unless you do like this ritual to control it and manage it. And that anxiety will not go away until you do that ritual. But it comes as a problem when you actually don't have the ability to do that ritual and it becomes super overwhelming. So people always think it as a, a clean thing, but it doesn't have to be 
things have to be in their set order or in this clean way. It can be really like anything that uh, kind of triggers that anxiety and you have like this system that you have to control it to get the anxiety to disappear. Uh, the last one that I have listed is PTSD that I talked about in the previous episode. And it's caused by a traumatic event, which are often war, assaults, accidents, disasters, or abuse. Um, and it can show up as upsetting dreams, flashbacks, or avoidance. And it has to last for a month or more in order to be considered PTSD. And that is one that if you have like a car accident, you're more likely to be able to recover from that PTSD. Or if you have an extremely traumatic event like abuse or war, it might last an entire lifetime, but it can be managed. All types of anxiety or mental illnesses, even if they do not go away, they can be manageable. Um, and then last, I have uh, the effects that stigmas have. And this is from the National Alliance on Mental Health. So stigmas delay help or and can be worse than the anxiety themselves. So it can tell you like, oh, well, you're not being anxious. It's you're just stressed or, oh, you're just overreacting. You're, you don't have anxiety. You're just overthinking this one thing or you just have that personality trait where you just overthink everything. And so you won't get help to treat it because you think it is nothing or you're afraid of what other people might think. And anxiety is also different from stress. And one stigma is that the anxiety is just an excuse and it is not. Everyone gets stressed, but with anxiety disorder, the colors and the experiences paint a different picture that one society than the one society has on display. Um, it also downplays the reality like stigmas do. And people with anxiety have the inability to process the symptoms as this too will pass. So anxiety lingers and it is the expectation expectation of the worst without the ability of to use reasoning to understand it as irrational, even though recognizing it as irrational does not ease the symptoms. Like knowing that it's irrational and not being able to ease the symptoms can make anxiety even more frustrating. And it can be really easy to like lose control of emotions when you're trying to like control or suppress what you're feeling because you feel like you're not supposed to be feeling that way. So ways to like handle your anxiety symptoms is to talk openly openly about mental health, telling your own story to inspire other people to receive help and maybe even recognize the symptoms in themselves and speaking up about like negative stereotypes. If someone's saying something that's not quite right about anxiety, just correcting them and their thoughts, be like, well, I know you think this, but in reality, this is how it is for people with anxiety. And so that it's a more open environment for people to receive help. Uh, listening to people without judgment, avoid using fix-it language. We're like, well, just do this or just go out tonight or just like pushing things onto them rather than letting them fully process it. And you have to remember like when you're dealing with someone with anxiety, they are a person, not just their symptoms. And anxiety is just a part of life, not all of life. And if you have anxiety, talking to other people can like make it really much more bearable than it is. And then there's exercises, treatment plans, and counseling that you can go to for help, which I'll get into a little more in the next episode. To wrap things up, as a reminder, uh, our Instagram is moralstory.podcast, and in our bio, we have our link to our website, which I will post when I have those articles up on the website, 
that kind of reflects in these episodes as well as some additional information. Uh, our Twitter, which I don't really use, is moral underscore podcast. And if you have listener stories, I don't think I'm going to have an episode where I announce those, but I might have a section on our website where I can keep it anonymous, but people can use it to express some of their own stories and kind of open a conversation about mental health. So if you have a story that you want to share, uh, our email is moralofthestorypodcast2021 at gmail.com. Our Patreon and our website is also linked in the description of this episode. If you would like to donate or take a look at the website, you can find it there. And I believe that's all I have for today. In this episode, I'm actually going to wrap up with two quotes. The first one, I don't know who it is from, but it is, uh, self-care is giving the world the best of you instead of what is left of you. And the second is from Robert Two, or T-E-W, and it is, sometimes you got to take a break from all the noise to appreciate the beauty of silence. And that's the moral of the story. Thank you for listening, and I hope you tune in next time.